Okay, so welcome back to another episode of both the Tap HR podcast and our YouTube channel. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Kirsty to the podcast. So welcome, Kirsty. Thank you very much for having me here. <laughs> and today we're talking about all things neurodiversity. So I'm really excited to be able to just explore the topic a little bit more because it's in the news a lot. And I think it's useful for people to understand a little bit more about it and kind of push the boundaries of their curiosity with it a little bit. So tell us kind of a little bit more about you before we get into the questions. Okay, so I am neurodiverse, so I'm dyslexic, and that's how I identify myself. So quite often people, when they talk about being neurodiverse, it may be I'm neurodiverse. I refer to myself as I'm dyslexic. And I was diagnosed when I was seven years old, so I've always known that I've been dyslexic. But let's say I wasn't always friends with my dyslexia. Um, We didn't get on when I was younger. I didn't understand it. And it took me a long time to actually accept it. And really that acceptance was really key for me. And that didn't happen till I was in my early 30s. So I kind of fought with it, didn't want it, didn't understand it, wanted it gone. And during school, it was always there. And I thought when I started work, that it was going to be like a magic wand and it's going to disappear. No, that didn't happen. So I refer to it as I struggled in silence. And my background is in HR and operations management. And being in HR, hey, we know about being inclusive of all of that. But why as an HR person, I was like, I can't tell people I'm dyslexic. What will they think? You know, they're going to judge me on my writing skills. How am I going to write HR policies? So I had all of this imposter syndrome, but yet a real strive to want to work with people. So it was a real journey of working out how I can do what I want to do, whilst also dealing with the frustrations and barriers. And that's why I suffered in silence for many years. And it wasn't until I was much older that I started learning about it and actually thought, no, I am capable of more. And then I've suddenly found myself going, do you know what? I'm capable of a lot more. And what I really want to do is kind of totally engulf myself within this space. And that's what I do. So I now work self-employed, working with neurodiverse people around workplace strategy coaching, uh, around all that sort of coaching element. But I also work with companies to help them raise the awareness about neurodiversity but in the sense of one, what is neurodiversity? But two, why should we care? And what do we do to support our employees? And how's it going to benefit them as a company? So I've been able to really bring together that HR knowledge, as well as my neurodiversity lived experience as a person, and also as a mother of a dyslexic son as well, to bring that all together and create a new journey for myself, which is lovely. Amazing. Now, there's a few things in there that I'd like to pick up with you on, but it might be useful to start off with kind of the, the latter things that you were saying. So hmm. for people who don't necessarily understand what we're talking about when we say yeah. neurodiversity, what, what are we talking about and what do we mean? Okay, so neurodiversity covers a whole wide range of things. Things like being dyslexic, ADHD, autism, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, that sort of thing. So it's an umbrella term. But neurodiversity means that basically we think differently and our brains are wired slightly differently to what we class as the neurotypical 
slash normal people, which I don't like that word. And all that means is the majority of people are referred to as being neurotypical mm-hmm. and neurodiverse is a minority of people think in a different way. But even when I say the minority, it's so, you know, one in seven of us are neurodiverse. One in five, they say, are dyslexic. But that's only the people that have been diagnosed. Mm. You know, at school, I was fortunate in some ways, people would say, because I got diagnosed at school. But only 20% of people get diagnosed at school. That's 80% then after school that either get diagnosed or are suffering in silence still. Mm. So we're seeing a lot more self-diagnosis. And that, I think, is great. And even under the Equality Act, self-diagnosis is recognised. So you don't have to go through that formal diagnosis process. So there's many things out there that can help you gain an understanding if you are neurodiverse. And a lot of people kind of say, oh, but I do things like that. And it's like, yes, you may do, but that may not mean you have dyslexia or ADHD. It's people like myself, these things will happen all the time and really have an impact, not just on work, but they will have an effect on our personal lives and our social lives and all different elements of it. So it really is, it does, it makes a massive difference in all areas of my life. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that kind of really sparked my interest was when you were talking about kind of suffering in silence and not feeling like you could tell people about what you were, I'm not going to use the word struggle, but what you were kind of mm-hmm. dealing with. What, what was it that kind of pushed you through that? And what was it that enabled you to start talking about it and almost be kind of empowered and energised by it? There was a few things. It was, the main thing in some way was my son. When he was born, it was... You know, within a couple of years, I could see the traits. It's hereditary for a start. It's more common in boys. It's more common in left-handers. He ticked two of those, being a boy and being left-handed. And I think because of my dyslexia, I was far more tuned in to it with my kids. So I was able to recognise it really early on. And I was determined he was not going to view it how I did. I didn't want him to have this lack of understanding, this loathing of it. I needed him to accept it. So that's when, to be honest, Trish, I put my big girl pants on and I was like, right, come on, girly, you need to learn about this stuff because actually you don't even know what dyslexia is. You're just going on what you were taught and told when you were seven and eight years old. So I started to learn about it, read about it, listen about it. And that's when I realized that the strengths I have were plattered together with my frustrations And actually, those strengths helped me create strategies for my frustrations. And I realized that some of my strategies were were exactly that. They were things that I'd created to help me. So that really kind of helped me go, oh, I just felt empowered. I felt like I understood myself. And as a kid, I loved drama as a kid. So I was like, oh, wow, I can pretend to be someone else. And now, as an adult, it's like, actually, I need to connect to who I am. So that was really helpful. So then it was about bearing, right, this is awesome. This is how I can help him. But then I was like, but how can I help me? And I'd hit a ceiling within my HR career, and I couldn't go any further unless I got the CIPD qualification. And that meant going to uni and doing that master's degree. 
So that was another really big journey for me. And I would say was quite a big turning point. Even in my dissertation, I wrote that I've taken control of my dyslexia. My dyslexia does not control me. And that for me was a massive turning point and a massive turning point in my mindset to go, I will define my limitations and cap my potential, nobody else. And that's where really I started to push myself in other areas within my career to kind of go further. And it was when I became a senior manager that is, there was one person I was managing and she confided in me about her dyslexia because she knew I was dyslexic as well. And it was like this light bulb of, there's 101 of you, Kirsty. There's so many of the pre-Kirsty suffering in silence. And I, it's like I was having a little tantrum. And I was like, I'm not having this. I'm not having it. I want to help these people. So that's where... And being a senior manager was great because I was at that senior level. I could just blow the lid off it and go, here I am. This is what I'm about. We need to help me and a whole lot of others after me. So, yeah, that was kind of it. <laughs> it just went for it from there. <laughs> yeah. um, sticking with, I suppose, the, the, the workplace environment then, mm. uh, what kind of challenges might somebody who's neurodiverse come up against in the workplace and what things do you think businesses can do to support people wow there's 101 things they can do but the things challenges that come up job descriptions if we take that employee life cycle right from the start job descriptions and the terminology that's used the word excellent excellent english skills or writing skills i don't have excellent skills i've got b's in my gcse's but it's those words that will hold a really big weight. And for me, I'd be like, oh, I'm not applying for that role. They want that. Um, whereas a lot of the job description I might do. And half the time, job descriptions don't actually explain what the role is. They kind of skirt around it and they try and use big words and fancy words. And it's kind of like, let's just say what the job is, please. And let's only put in what our essential skills are. If we're looking at, say, like a finance job, yes, you may want that person to be able to communicate with other people. But actually, what's more important is them being able to do that finance mm -hmm. and to do that data. So let's focus on really what the essential requirements are for the job. It's about creating an open environment and an open culture and that's meaning letting people speak about their conditions, no matter what it is. And that, again, can really start at the kind of start of the recruitment process, whether it be in the application forms. Wow, they can be a nightmare. Mm. Some of them, some of them that do the autosave, that's great as long as I know it's doing it. But if it's doing it and then going to kick me out, that can be a nightmare because then I'm carrying on writing it and I've lost half my work. I dictate a lot of stuff, so I may not be able to use my software into the application form. And actually, I'd much prefer to submit a 10 minute video and explain to you what I've done in the past and everything else than having to write it, because I will miss words out when I'm writing it. I won't explain it and, oh, I'll reread things hundreds of times before I submit them. So I think there are different ways of how we can interview people. Even when we look at onboarding somebody, 
Is there additional software they require? Maybe they have arthritis and they could really do with the mouse speed being slowed down. It's not just about the neurodiversity side of things. There's lots of other things. And actually, it's so much more empowering when you start a job and your laptop's there with all the support you need and you know where to go to go and get additional support. Where's that contact person? Having those regular meetings with managers is really important. And I found that as a manager and being managed as well. And for me, it was about checking the understanding. If my manager asked me to do a job, that's great. Verbalize it to me, back it up in an email. But by verbalizing it allowed me then to check what I had heard them say. And I could go, right, so this is what you wanted me to do. And be clear, if you want a report done, how many words do you want that report to be? What date do you want that report given to you by? So we can actually get some really clear parameters in there so I can plan things. Meetings are one of my bugbears, I have to admit, okay? So quite often I'd go to meetings and I would be given a policy, say, to skim read. Ah, I can't skim read, okay? That sets me into a bit of kind of anxiety there because all I'm focused is on is someone else across the table who's already on page two, and I'm still on page one. Let's actually send all these information with all the meetings invite with an agenda. Let's send it all before. That means then for me being neurodiverse, because my processing speed slower, I can read it. I've got time to process it. I've got time to prepare for that meeting. So when I turn up to that meeting, I know where those bits are in that policy I want to discuss. And I implemented this with a company. And what we found was by doing that, we not only helped those workers that were part-time, we helped people like myself, but more importantly, we found that meetings were more productive because we weren't wasting time, in a sense, reading the information. We'd already done all that. And actually, our meetings were far more productive, far more concise and we were getting things done quicker. So we weren't having to have that meeting after meeting on the same topic. Um, so yeah, that can be really helpful. And it's about, for companies, it's about looking at someone's strengths. And that's what we should do, no matter if somebody's neurodiverse or not. Mm-hmm. It is looking at those strengths and working with that person on their strengths. We all have different strengths. So make a department up of all of those different strengths and then you've got a beautiful team. Mm. And it just, it, if you embrace that neurodiversity and element, you'll open up your company also to different markets because people will, people come with different ideas and concepts for that different area of market. So that can really help from a customer point of view as well. I so, yeah, sorry. Mm. No, go on. I think it's really important to just understand your people. I think that's, you know, that's a large part of what you were saying, right? Like, yeah, what works for one person might not work for another, neurodiverse or not. And it's just understanding mm-hmm. what their strengths are, how you can work with them and how you can support them to kind of get the best out of them. I think that's a super piece of advice. <laughs> yeah. And even if you kind of take those working hours, you know, in my mind gone are the day when your core hours are kind of like nine to five or you set out for some people 
they love routines. So someone that's autistic may really strive on that. Fantastic. For someone who's ADHD, who may have struggles with time management, that can be a nightmare. So give them a window of start and finishing. It doesn't have to, I think people are scared of going, oh, but if we treat people differently, we're not doing it the right way. And it's like, no, no, no. It's, Sharon, I haven't got a picture. It's like kind of, a, if you can imagine a fence and trying to let people look over the fence to watch, say, a game of football. You can give all people the same size box, but that's still not going to help if one person is still below the fence. Mm-hmm. You've got to make adjustments for people to enable them to actually be inclusive. Mm, I completely agree. And it's great that we're having this conversation, but what is it that you think has prompted people to be talking more about neurodiversity recently? I feel like we're talking about it more in kind of recent months, maybe recent years. What do you think has driven that? I think there's probably a number of different things. There's there's a lot more people that are probably in the limelight, so to speak, that are coming out with their neurodiversities. Now, I think that does help. Mm-hmm. I think it really helps. For some people, though, like me, they seem too far out of my reach. You're your Richard Branson's, you're Lewis Hamilton's, Jamie Oliver, all of those people. They're just kind of too far out. So for me, it's more about finding people that are in my arena that are more kind of where I feel at my level that are speaking about it and bringing it to the forefront. I think it's also really key that we've noticed in the whole world that AI and all the computer side of things is really coming into play. But actually, a lot of the skills that neurodiverse people have are exactly what the computers can't do. They can't do that empathy. So I think it's really highlighted that we've got, we're not tapping into that market as much as we can. We're not supporting people. And I think we've realised actually that we just need to be more inclusive of everybody and the benefits that provides. And neurodiversity is just one element of that big picture of what we need to kind of be inclusive about. Yeah, I think I have to say the the best teams that I've had are ones that have got a real good mix and a spread of people. And I think I really struggle with the idea that there are neurotypical people. So I think our brains are so complex, not a scientist in any way, shape or form. Um, But I think our brains are so complex to, to suggest that they only work in one certain way to me is just a little bit crazy so I love having people that think in totally different ways that can kind of challenge me within a team because then you get kind of proper creativity and ideas and mm. so if you have people in the team that are all the same you're just going to end up with the same thing same. So, yeah right and that's boring in my mind <laughs> I, I like that I like the diversity of teams and I think for me some people see it as conflict and I won't see it as conflict I see it as that healthy discussion looking at things and that's where I get intrigued I'm like oh why do you see it like that that's interesting explain that to me because I love the different side of things you even being dyslexic I've got friends that skim read and I'm like wow you're dyslexic and can skim read that blows my mind how do you do it I just get really intrigued intrigued and that's I am I I get intrigued by lots of different things (laughs) (laughs) tell us a bit more about how you can help companies then and how you're using your experience to benefit others 
Okay, so I go into companies and do quite a lot of awareness talks, and that will be either to all employees or to managers, and it will be about what is neurodiversity? What does it look like in a team? What does it look like to manage a team and be neurodiverse? And how you can bring that all together and really help support your team to be the best they can. And I think we all know if employees are happy at work, they're going to be more productive. And if they're more productive, that helps the bottom line. (laughs) But it's also about if we're happier in work, then it's creating that culture. It's creating that company of choice. Because people do talk about, oh, my company's great. They do this to support me. They help me here. And with retention of staff being so key, I think this is a really good way to start. And having these awareness sessions is what I found from doing them and the feedback I'm getting is they're a really nice introductory way of providing a safe space for people to actually start mentioning about their neurodiversities and start having those conversations, which I think is awesome. I also work on coaching side of things. And what we're seeing a lot more is that people... People have internal coaches, but what we're finding is people are still reluctant to be 100% open with them because they're still part of that organisation. So a lot of the coaching that I will do will be around strategies, but it will also be around that internal feelings of how that person's feeling, that imposter syndrome, how the external factors might be coming in. And they're the bits that companies may not see all the time and they're the bits that people don't necessarily want to share with an internal coach so I do a lot of coaching on that side of things and starting to do a lot more public speaking about it around the mindset and changing that negative chitter chatter in your head and all of those things have such an important place to play of how we can all grow as individuals awesome and on top of all the things that you do so for Mm -hmm particular are there any kind of free resources that people can have a look at that might support them with supporting people who are neurodiverse in the workplace there's loads of different free to kind of work out there and one thing that I think is really untapped by company is access to work which is a government funded scheme and that can be for employees or self-employed people and they will actually, and again, you don't have to have a formal diagnosis and you will work with someone to discuss what you're finding more challenging in the workplace. And they will create, you know, they'll make recommendations of what could be good for you. You know, Even things like standing desk to different software, to coaching, to all of these different things. And then a company can choose what elements to put in. For some companies, they do need to pay a small part of it. For other companies, they don't. There's various different kind of forums and Facebook groups and things like that people can join. And there's also different associations like the British Dyslexic Association. They will have free resources on there as well. Fab. And I'll make sure that I pop links to all of the things you just said in the comments and wherever you're digesting this information, I'll put links. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else that you think it would be useful for us to chat about or cover focusing on neurodiversity I think it's also I think people are scared about approaching the subject with an employee Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good 
question I have a lot of how do I approach the subject and it's kind of like no I wouldn't recommend you go up to someone and say oh do you think you're dyslexic no I wouldn't do that it's more about creating that culture and having those conversations with someone and you can easily go from a different point of view it's like you would for anybody if you've seen somebody struggling in a certain area oh you've you know is there something we can do to help you there is there any support you'd like I noticed that you're struggling in this area what do you think could do we could do to help you mm. for part of me is like get rid of the label just go and help people and have that empathy in that conversation if people want to disclose that's up to them but they don't have to and they won't unless you create that safe environment for people Mm, I think there's so much power in just asking kind of carefully thought out questions like you say if you're seeing someone struggling ask (laughs) why would we let how can I help you (laughs) yeah fabulous stuff so how can people get hold of you so if people have listened to this and thought oh actually it would be really useful to have one of your awareness sessions how can Mm -hmm get hold of you to be able to start that off so you can find me on linkedin and facebook instagram linkedin is probably the easiest way kirsty heap and my website is nice and easy kirstyheap.com and it's heap is in a compost heap so it's a p at the end always feel i have to explain that because sometimes they think it's heat as in hot um but no heap is in compost heap and i'm quite happy to ask answer different questions and that's what it's all about is raising that awareness mm. and having a chat. Yeah. No, I completely agree. All right. Well, Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really, really helpful and really, really enlightening. And hopefully we can have you back again soon. Absolutely. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Welcome. Speak soon. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>